You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Romans chapter 7, no longer bound to the law. Now, dear brothers and sisters, you who are familiar with the law, don't you know that the law applies only while a person is living? For example, when a woman marries, the law binds her to her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, the laws of marriage no longer apply to her. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law and does not commit adultery when she remarries. So my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. As a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. When we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us, and the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds, resulting in death. But now we have been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the spirit. God's law reveals our sin. Well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would not have that power. At one time, I lived without understanding the law. But when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life and I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. But still, the law itself is holy and its commands are holy and right and good. But how can that be? Did the law, which is good, cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death so we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commands for its own evil purposes. Struggling with sin. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong, it is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. 
Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. Said, and it's a great joy to be back in the church with you. It's been a, a little while since I've been able to preach for you. Um, I've been preaching elsewhere at our young adults camp, but it's a great uh, thing to be in the Word with you this morning. I just wanted to say something before we dive into Romans 7. I just, I just am experiencing and noting that I think as we walk into church this morning, we're feeling a little weary, feeling a little tired, our bodies are sore, um, and I get it, right? I'm feeling it too. Uh, 13 hours ago, uh, we finished our youth all-nighter. Right? So we've been up all, all Friday night, and so I'm feeling tired as well. But here's, here's the thing and the great encouragement. We actually have something in the gospel that is so much greater than what our bodies are experiencing. And so if you are feeling tired and weary and sore, lift up your eyes, as the song says, and set them on Jesus. Because what can happen when we're feeling tired is that we take our eyes off him and we drag our feet and our worship becomes a little slurred and we don't actually enjoy the gospel for all that it is. So what I'm going to do before we, before we jump into Romans 7 is to pray for us that we would set our minds on Christ. Father, we thank you for everything that you have given us. We thank you for the great joy it is to be found in you. For the great joy it is to be freed from the law and from sin. And I pray that as we enter into church this morning, as we open up the text, that you would set our minds and our hearts and our souls on fire for you. That we would take our eyes off of the distractions of the world, off the weariness of our bodies, and that we would eat at the feast that is the gospel. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, friends, we have a feast this morning in Romans chapter 7. It is a precious jewel for us. Because what Romans 7 shares and shows us is the joy of the gospel, the joy of being set free from sin and the law, the joy of knowing that we're forgiven, and also the frustration that comes from knowing all these things and experiencing sin. Sin from the world and, most importantly, from Romans 7, sin from within us. Romans 7 is about freedom, forgiveness, and frustration. What it does is produce and provide these questions for us. If the things that we're reading are true, that were read out for, from Christos and from last week, if we have been set free from sin and the law, then what does it mean for us? Does being a Christian now mean that I can do anything I want to do? If we've been saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no one can boast, not by the law, then what is our relationship to the law? And what, what is the effect of sin now on the Christian? If we've been set free from sin and the law, then what role does sin have? What, what is it doing to us? Why do I find myself sinning even now? 
See, as we open up Romans 7, there's an internal conflict Paul is describing going on between this man who's discovered this deep freedom, this deep forgiveness in Christ, and yet is experiencing day by day this frustration of succumbing to sin. It's actually a little bit like how the world sees us. See, it sees us uh, espousing who we claim ourselves to be, who we desire ourselves to be, and often it feels judged. Often it feels inferior because we look at who the Christian claims himself to be, freed from sin, a different person, a new creation. Well, I'm not like that. And then it sees who we actually are and often feels superior and judges us, often rightly. There's a conflict between who we claim ourselves to be and who we actually are that is difficult. There's a conflict going on. And it's a miscalculation on all parts because we aren't yet who we claim ourselves to be often. We are a new creation in Christ. We have been born again, and yet we have this frustrating reality of living with sin every day. It reminds me of a story I once heard about a, a pastor who had taken over a new role in a church. And a lady in his congregation, after six months or so, wrote him a letter sort of detailing all the areas that he fell short. Right? Your character is no good, your sermons are no good, they go too long, you're terrible, you don't visit enough people, you're, you're not very good at your job, you, are you even saved? And the pastor wrote back, alas my dear, if you knew me better I fear that your letter would be twice as long. I, th I think there's, there's something important in that, that yes we are new, we are new, but there's something settled about, man if you actually knew who we were. We have a very different story. Well, if Romans 6 is about the fruits of justification by faith, that is, being saved means that we're no longer under the slavery of sin, we have a new master, Christ, then Romans chapter 7 means that if we're saved by faith, we're not under the authority of the law. The law is no longer our task master. We have a new master, Christ. And Paul introduces this freedom from the law by way of an analogy. Let's read from verse 1 to 3. <coughs> Excuse me. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man whilst her husband is alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So what, what is Paul saying? We're saying the law has authority over us as long as we are alive. We're only released from that authority once we die, once we pass from this world. And he sort of uses the analogy of marriage in the same sense that a husband is connected, partnered with his wife 
for how long all of life until they die, in the same sense that a woman is partnered and connected with her husband until they die, that's the same sense that we're connected to the law. When you die, if you're in a marriage, if you're married, once you die, the other partner can move on, find a new husband or a new wife. It's death that severs this connection between married partners and in the same sense, it's death that, that severs the connection between us and the authority of the law. In the married person's case, it's the death of the husband or the wife, but in our case, it's the death of Christ that severs our connection to the law. We're no longer under the authority of the law because someone has died. We have died with Christ. And when you become married or when you become Christian, you find this yourself in this new relationship with new allegiances. I remember distinctly the first year that um, Sarah and I were married in a challenging year because all of a sudden I'm part of this new thing and I'm confronted with all my shortcomings and my sinfulness. There's this whole new relationship that takes place and it changes things. For the first time in my life, I have to think about someone else's feelings, which is probably a terrible thing now that I realize it and have said it out loud, that at the age of 23, 24, that... Anyway, let me stop talking about that. You're confronted with how much you think about your own desires and your own thoughts and your own wishes And for the first time, you actually have to curtail some of your freedoms. You can no longer be an autonomous person anymore. You're bound to someone else. You're bound to your wife or to your husband, and you're together in this team. And so you have to give up some freedom. But you give up some freedom in order that you might discover a new joy, a new intimacy, a new connection with someone else that you couldn't experience just as an autonomous individual. Yes, in marriage, we have to give up a lot of freedom, but we gain something joyful in return. Marriage is not a burden, it's a joy. And Paul's making the same kind of argument about our new relationship with Christ. We were under the authority of the law, but now we are no longer under the law. We have a new master. Christ has died for us, and now we are bound to another. And by the way, when Paul is talking about the law He's not just talking about the Ten Commandments. He's talking about the Mosaic Law. That is the first five books of the the Old Testament. Everything that was handed down from God to Israel about how to live a holy life before a blameless God. How do we live as Jews? We follow the law. That's what Paul's talking about. That's the authority. And Christians are no longer under it. We are no longer wed to the law. We have a new master. Verse 4 says this, So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you may belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So can Christians do whatever we like? 
Can Christians live any kind of life? Well, the clear answer is no, of course not. Now, we know this, but it's important to go through it. Now, why can we not? Well, we're not under the authority of the law anymore. Can't I just do whatever I want? Well, now I'm wed to Christ. I'm bound to another. Who am I bound to? I am bound to him who was raised from the dead. That is Jesus. And why am I bound to him? So that I may bear fruit for God. We have our answer to the question. Can we do whatever we want? No. Why? Because I'm bound to another. Well, why am I bound to another? So that I can be effective for God and bear fruit for him. We're not under the authority of the law, but we are in this new relationship with Christ. New allegiances for Christ. And the reason we're in a new relationship, new allegiances, is because we need to bear fruit for God. And how do we bear fruit? We don't do it by law-keeping, but by being united with Jesus, by being spending time with Jesus, by being in this new relationship with Jesus. It's not following this set of laws or rules that if we put two and two together, we'll make four. No, 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 no. It's we spend time with Jesus. We're united with him. That's how we grow as Christians. Paul has been making this argument all through the book of Romans that the law cannot save us. The law cannot save us. You can't be justified by the law. You can't be saved by the law. And now he's saying you can't only not be saved by the law, you can't grow by the law. The law can't save you. It cannot grow you. And it's, it's interesting that even now we know this. We know that if we keep the Ten Commandments, it's not necessarily going to grow us as Christians and c continue to mould us more like Christ. It's Jesus and the Holy Spirit who's doing that. But we make laws like this all the time. Now, we might not have the Torah to follow. We might not have the Old Testament to follow, but we make laws all the time. We make laws like every single godly person who has ever existed wakes up at 5 a.m. in the morning to pray for four hours. Right? And so a number of us go, well, that's what the godly missionaries do, so I should do that as well. So I'm going to wake up at 5 a.m. Now, does it say that in the Bible? No. Or you might hear Jono or myself talk about reading old dead guys, right? Like Charles Spurgeon. Like he's like, I don't know, just pure like, I was going to think of a drug, but it's probably not a great analogy, right? Just like pure Holy Spirit, that's better, in my veins, right? I'm reading Charles Spurgeon like three in the morning and I'm just so excited about Jesus and so excited about God. I just want to share it with all my neighbors. And you might think, well, for me to be an effective Christian and to grow, grow in my relationship with Jesus, then I need to get a hold of the collected work of Charles Spurgeon. I need to read Calvin Institutes. And it's just, it's not true. You don't grow by following all these laws or by ticking off a checkbox. You grow by being united with Jesus. We are bound to another. We're not under the law, not the old law or new laws that we create for ourselves. We are saved by grace alone. We continue by grace alone and we finish by grace alone. But it introduces the question, well, what is our relationship with the law? Verses 5 and 6 say, For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what's, what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. 
Well, someone might say, well, now that I've been completely accepted in Christ, and it wasn't because of my works, it wasn't because of things that I'd done, it's completely by grace through faith, well, that has just removed any incentive for me to live a holy life. It's all been done for me. Well, the answer has to be, if that's your incentive and motivation for being more like Jesus, your actual incentive isn't Jesus, it's fear of being rejected and removed. If you knew that you were accepted by grace through faith, by nothing that you've done, that fills us with a joy and a love that commands us and compels us to follow Jesus and to be made more like him and to obey him. We don't obey the law because it saves us. We obey the law because Christ desires us to be more like him. And so out of love and obedience, we say, okay, okay, Jesus, you're our new headmaster. You're our new taskmaster. Let me follow you. We have been released from the authority of the law, but not to do as we please, but to follow Jesus. It says in verse 6, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. Right? We have been filled with the Holy Spirit. What? In order to bear fruit. As it says in verse 4, not by keeping the law, but by being united with Jesus. But it brings up an important question for us. Is the law sinful? Has God given us this thing which he knew from the start is going to mess us up and stuff us up and get us off track? Has what God intended for good actually been used for evil? Well, let's read from 7 to 13. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. And once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. Is the law sinful? By no means. The law isn't sinful. It's sin itself that is producing us all these kinds of things that have got us off, off track and messed us up and stuffed us up. It's not the law that's got us off track. It's sin. Indwelling sin. Not his sin or her sin. My sin. Your sin that's inside of you. The law is actually good. God intended it for good, and it does at least three things. There's three primary uses of the law that God intended for us. One, the law reveals what God wills. One of the most common questions that we receive in when we're catching up with someone is, what is the will of God for my life? What does God want me to do? 
Well, he's actually written it out in a book for you to know and understand. We know what kinds of things God loves. We know what kind of things God desires. We know what kind of things God commands us to do. Now, we're not saved by them, but we know what God loves and desires. He loves kindness and mercy and justice and forgiveness and grace. And he often actually labels it out for us, shows us he's working. This is what it looks like to show mercy. This is what it looks like to show justice and grace. And so often we're like, what is the will of God? What is the will of God? Read your Bibles. My goodness, sometimes. But it actually has two negative purposes, the law. It has a positive purpose in that it shows us the will of God, but it has two negative purposes. We see this in the verse today. Verse 7, it defines sin for us. I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, not said, you shall not covet. We would not know what sin was unless God said, this is what sin is. You're looking at it. We would have just gone unknowingly sinning. But God actually defines sin for us. He says, these are the things that break my heart. These are the things that condemn you to death. He doesn't only define sin. The law actually reveals sin in us. I don't know if you've ever seen a wet sign where someone's just painted and there is nothing in my entire body that wants more than to get my big hand and just put it right in there. Well, that's sin. Because I know the commandment. Don't put your big hand in the wet paint sign. But what do I want to do? I want to put my hand in the big wet paint sign. The very same thing is going on in Romans chapter 7. God outlines what coveting is and our body's response is to covet everything. Once I was alive, apart from the law, sorry, verse 8, sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. The law reveals our sin. Often we go, I, I'm not a sinner. I'm not that bad. I meet people all the time that says, well, I, I, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not too bad. I'm a pretty good person. You need to see the law. The law reveals your sinfulness. Your, the law reveals your need for a saviour. But the law itself isn't sinful. It's me who's sinful. The law isn't poison. It's a thing that resides in me that's poison, that's killing me. It's not the law. The law has positive uses. It shows us what God desires. It shows us what sin is. It reveals sin in us. It's not the law that's bad. It's us. And now we get on to 14.25. Now I have to say before we enter in here, that Romans, 14, Romans 7, 14 and 25 is one of the most controversial sections of Romans. It's something that many, many Christians have disagreed with over the years. Because the controversy is, who is Paul describing? Is Paul describing a Christian believer struggling with their sin? Is he describing an unbeliever who's being convicted by the Spirit and is trying to find out who will save him? Christian, unchristian, saved, unsaved. And it's been an enormous controversy. And what, what I want to do is I want to read it out. I'll take us through it. 
and I'll share what I think Paul is saying. So let's read from 14. Now we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Now, as I said before, this is a text that has divided Christians, not along church lines. It's actually quite interesting. Often you can sort of guess this is where this person will go. They belong to this group. This group thinks this, but this is split 50-50. I read seven different commentaries leading up to this, and they said about three and a half different things each. Right? Some are on this side, some are on that side. And we look through church history, and it's the same story. The early church fathers thought that this put couldn't possibly be a Christian since no Christian could describe themselves as being sold under sin anymore. Romans 6 has just told us we're not slaves to sin anymore, so how could we be sold under sin? And then Augustine and the reformers such as John Calvin and Martin Luther said, well, no, Christ, no non-Christian would ever delight in the law of God in their innermost being, in their heart, in the deep places. They might, they might delight in their minds, but in the innermost being? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And so it's a difficult text for us to delve into. And the truth is that it's, both options are plausible. There's a good amount of evidence either way, whether Paul's talking about a Christian or a non-Christian. And it's important for me to actually say that you can be wrong on this text, that you can interpret, interpret it differently than I might or someone else might and still be completely okay on the overall view of sanctification. And what I mean by that is that you might say, well, this isn't describing the experience of a Christian and still think that Christians have experiences like this that they might experience doing things that they don't want to do. They might be crying out, wretched man that I am, who will save me? Or you might believe that this is a Christian and yet way more victory over sin and sinfulness is possible than what this text is displaying. See, we want to have um, holistic visions of discipleship and following Jesus. We don't base it off one text. That's what cults do. But it's important for us to get a good understanding of this. So let me take you through the arguments both for and against. So arguments for this being the experience of a Christian. 
Well, first and foremost, Paul, he changes his tenses. Before 14, he's sort of talking about himself in past. I was like this. I used to do this. And now he makes a present tense. All throughout 14 to 25, he's talking about himself in a present tense. Right? Second, non-Christians don't delight in, their, in the law in their innermost being. That's something that Christians do. Because we actually believe that our hearts are sinful and deceitful. They don't desire God. That's what Romans 3 says. No one desires God. No one cherishes him, right? And in fact, Romans 1 says that we suppress the truth. So why is this non-Christian desiring the law in their innermost being? It also doesn't quite make sense with Paul's other statements about his pre-conversion life. In other statements he makes, like in Philippians and Corinthians, he describes his former life as being almost blameless, almost perfect. We don't see this vision of Paul as a wretched man anywhere else in Scripture when Paul's talking about his pre-conversion experience. And finally, this person cries out to Jesus even in the midst of their sin and sinning. In verse 24 and 25. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord, which might be a turning point, but it says, then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. So this person cries out to God even in their sinful nature. Well, the arguments for this being a non-Christian experience, are important as well. For one, the Holy Spirit is not mentioned in 14 to 25, even when it's very present in Romans chapter 6, and it's super present in Romans chapter 8, which describes the Christian's experience. So why is the Holy Spirit not present? And I think the second one is quite difficult to reconcile as well. In Romans chapter 6, it says again and again and again that we're not slaves to sin. We're not under the yoke of slavery to sin. It's repetitious. And then Paul is saying in Romans 7, well, actually, I am under the slavery of sin. I've been sold under sin. That's, That's an odd argument for Paul to make. And what people who think this isn't, a Christian experience will say is that this is reflecting the mind of a pious Jew, someone who really, really, really loves the law of God and they're just describing it as being in their innermost being. So where do we, where do we sit with this? Oh, let me tell you where I land. I think it's very difficult for Paul to be using the kind of language that he uses and not to be talking about a Christian experience. Here's what I mean. In verse 18, he uses this super interesting phrase. He says, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. The ESV says, in my flesh. And it's interesting for two reasons. One, it's a devastating self-assessment for Paul. Paul, the perfect Jew, who in Philippians 3.16 said that he is perfect under the law. In fact, we might have it up on the screen. As for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. And now he's describing himself as sold under sin? Doesn't make much sense. But there's pushback there, I can get it. But it's actually the second half of the phrase That's challenging. 
He says, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. Self-assessment. That is in my flesh. Well, who has more than flesh? It's only the Christian who is anything more than flesh. It's only the Christian who's been given the Holy Spirit. It's only the, only the Christian who's been born again and been given a new heart and been spiritually rebirthed. It's only the Christian. In fact, Jesus says as much in the book of John, I think. We might have this on the screen as well. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. For the Christian, we've been given birth to spirit. There's something more to us. For Paul to be saying there's more than just the flesh, more than just this experience of sin, he must be describing something more than what a non-Christian can experience. He's describing a Christian experience. But for me, the thing that makes me tentative This is something I've wrestled with all week. This is not an easy text to understand. The thing that makes me tentative is what Paul says about being sold under slavery. I think this is an excellent argument. I think this is a really tricky thing to deal with. Because in Romans 6 it says again and again and again, we're not under the slavery of sin. We've been set free from sin. Again and again, it's repetitious to the point of being, okay, Paul, I I get it. Right? We're not under sin anymore. All right, just... Oh, I'll give you a dollar to stop saying it. It's so annoying, right? We, we get it. And then in Romans 7, 14 verses later, he's saying instantly that he's sold under sin. Well, Paul, what is it? Can Christians be under the slavery of sin or are we set free? What is it, Paul? You're making no sense. This can't describe a Christian. Well, let me think. This is what, how I think my way through it. I don't think that Romans 14 to 25 is talking about someone who is so completely being captivated by sin that they have sin as their complete master. What I think it's describing is a Christian who in a moment of failure has put back on their yoke of slavery once again that they have been set free from. And sin as the old slave master has laid claim to someone who they have no claim over, but this person has voluntarily gone back to the yoke, in the same way that a dog brings up their vomit and then just goes straight back to eat it again. Here's why I say that. In Romans 6, it says this, Romans 6 verse 12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. He's saying this to people who have been set free. So he's saying, do not let it reign. Don't give it an inch. Right? You've been set free, you've been given uh, authority to be set free from this, but don't let it reign. Don't obey sin anymore. You've set, been set free. Don't listen to sin anymore. Don't allow it back into your life. And it seems like even for the Christian who knows Jesus and has been set free from sin, that voluntarily we can enter back into this. And it's made even clearer for us in Galatians uh, chapter, where are we? It's in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. This is what it says. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, <coughs> and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. 
It seems like what Paul is saying, that Christians momentarily, blinded by their old sin, can enter back into a yoke of slavery, even though it holds no authority anymore. The the slave master of sin can't say, you're mine anymore, but Christians can voluntarily go back to what they once knew, even though they've been set free from sin. Even though sin has no authority on them anymore. And what does it look like? What does it look like to witness a Christian who goes back to their old ways, who submits to a yoke of slavery once again? Well, I was listening to John Piper this week. He once took eight years to go through the book of Romans. Right? We're doing like 20 weeks. Right? And he shared an insight about a great uh, saint of the faith that I think is incredibly helpful for us. Now, this saint is someone who knew the joys of gospel freedom. He knew the joys of being set free from sin and set free from the law. He knew the delight of being forgiven by Christ, and yet he experienced the soul-sapping nature and the frustrating experience of succumbing to sin. Who am I talking about? Peter the Apostle. Peter the Apostle was chosen by Christ. He sent, spent three years with Jesus, listening to him, being at his feet, experiencing him, modeling his life after Jesus. And Jesus once asked his disciples, well, who do men say that I am? And Peter's immediate response is, you're, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God, right? Boisterous, loudmouth, impulsive Peter, he knows who Jesus is. And Jesus responds to him, flesh and blood did not give you this answer, but my Father in heaven did. So Peter knows God. He's been given an insight into the true nature of God from God himself. That's who we're talking about. Peter is the rock. Petros, the rock of the church. Jesus is so excited. He's going to build his apostolic ministry around Peter. The church is going to explode. Jesus knows this already. And then on Jesus' crucifixion, what do we experience? Jesus is on the cross Peter runs away. A slave girl comes up to him and says, aren't you with that group? Aren't you with the apostles? No, no, no. I don't, I don't know those guys. No, 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 no you are. I, I've seen you with him. No, 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 no you've, got, you've got a mistake. You, you, you don't know me. That's not me. No, no, no. I saw, I saw you with him. No. I don't know that man. And the scriptures tell us in the book of Luke that Jesus looked at Peter and Peter wept and he wept and he wept once he realized what he'd done. And I would bet everything I have that in that moment, that night, that the verse that Peter's crying out is, wretched man am I. Who will deliver me from this cowardly nature of mine? Who will deliver me from this self-seeking nature of mine? But you might say, well, that's Peter before Pentecost. Peter doesn't yet have the Holy Spirit. He doesn't yet have the full experience of the Christian life. He's not been indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So this is Peter's old life. Fair enough. What do we see in the book of Acts? We're going through it at youth at the moment. We see in the book of Acts a man who is filled with the Spirit. 
In the first 10 chapters, it says it four or five times. Peter is filled with the Spirit. He's filled with the Spirit. He's filled with the Spirit. He's filled with the Spirit. And incredible things start happening. Peter preaches the first sermon. 3,000 people become Christians. He preaches again and again and again. And thousands upon thousands are entering from death into life and are becoming part of the kingdom of God. And they're doing incredible miracles. And the sick are being healed. And the demonic are being set free. And incredible things are happening. And he's writing this incredible wave of, godliness and courage and then he heads up to Antioch later on in the book of Acts and he's using his freedom as a Christian to no longer follow the dietary requirements of the law and he's, he's eating with Gentiles right? unclean, unset apart beautifully sanctified gloriously saved Gentiles and he's probably sitting with them eating ham and bacon right? He no longer has to follow the dietary requirements. He knows the freedom of being set free from Christ. And then the Judaizers come. Men from James describe this all over the Bible. Powerful men who believe that you needed to not only be saved by Jesus, but to follow every single one of the laws. And what does Peter do? He caves. This is what it says in Galatians 2, verse 12 and 13. For before certain men came from James, he, being Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. We're not talking about two yokels from the local pub. We're talking about Peter and Barnabas. But these are the heroes of the early church. These are, Peter's the guy who's preaching these incredible sermons and thousands upon thousands are becoming Christians and knowing Jesus and loving Jesus. And Barnabas is this guy who operates all these things behind the scenes and everything he touched turns to gold. And he's, he's the great encourager. His name literally means son of encouragement. And Peter and Barnabas are led astray. It's, in, it's interesting, these two words that get used. Hypocrisy and fear. Hypocrisy means that you're lying. You're presenting something to someone that isn't true anymore. Peter's saying to these Judaizers, these Jews who believe that you need to be circumcised, if you're a Gentile who believe you need to follow the laws, I wasn't with the Gentiles. That bacon smell? No, it was someone else. I, I, I don't eat bacon, I don't eat ham, I don't eat catfish. That's not me. Peter, it is you. In hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. But then in verse 12, what does it say about Peter? Why did he do these things? You can go back one slide. When he arrived, they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Peter, after all these years of experiencing incredible victories through Jesus Christ, is fearful again. He's fearful of what might happen to him and he succumbs to the very same cowardly nature that caused him to deny Christ at the cross. So get this, all of you strugglers, 
All of you guys and girls who have been battling the same old sin for not just two months or six months, but five years, ten years, fifteen, twenty years. Peter had all these advantages, but from the beginning he was cowardly. He had a cowardly nature. Right? Jesus says, uh, Jesus says, you have to wash my feet. Peter says, no, I, I'm not doing that. Peter says, you have to. Peter says, all right, I'll do, I'll do it all. Peter says, you guys are going to deny me. Peter says, not me. I'm never going to deny you. I'll, everyone can come. It doesn't matter who's there. I will never deny you, Lord. Just a bit later from that, I don't even know you. I don't even know you. Peter succumbs to the same old sin that's been besetting him from the very moment he began to follow Christ. The years go by. The decades go by. And Peter is still experiencing this indwelling sin. Even as a Christian who knows the Holy Spirit, who knows the freedom of Christ, who knows the forgiveness given to him in the gospel. And yet the sin's still there. And Paul rebukes him in Galatians 2. Paul goes up to him. He says it to his face, in fact. Peter, you're living a lie. You're being a hypocrite. You're being fearful. And not only are you doing things, it's compromising the gospel. You're not living out of step with your identity in Christ. You're compromising everything that we're working towards and that you're compromising your preaching of the gospel. And it's not just his actions. It's the sin that caused them. Peter's a Christian who's been called out by Paul because sin has once again set foot at his door and it's compromising the gospel. This is the Christian life. This is the apostolic life. We will never be beyond the reach of sin until that glorious moment on the last days when we get to see Jesus face to face and we're transformed into something completely different than what we are. Right? 1 Corinthians 15 says, raised perishable, raised imperishable. Set, uh, 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 sorry, set in dishonor, raised in glory. There will be a moment when there is no more dishonor about who we are. There is no more dishonor about our sin. We will be raised in glory. But mark my words, this does not mean that we get to settle with our sin. You could read the story of Peter or read the story of Paul as he describes it in Romans 7 and say, well, Paul experiencing this incredible besetting sin that comes to him again after time after time. Well, okay, well, if it you know, happened to the apostles, it happened to Paul, happened to Peter, happened to me, that's, that's okay, I'm, I'm off the hook. No. We do not live with a defeatist attitude with our sin. We make war with it and we put it to death. Right? Romans 6 guarantees that for every single Christian, we will have victory over our sin. Romans 7 tells us that we'll have defeats along the way. Right? They'll help us love Jesus more. But we will have victory. And so we make war with our sin. We make war with our nature. We make war with every desire of ourselves that is against what God wills and is pleasing to him. Right? And Romans 6 guarantees our victory. So there will be moments when you are blindsided by old sins, old manners of behavior, old patterns of acting, and it will come and it will come to your gate and it will lay claims on you that it doesn't have anymore. 
It will say, I am your master. I am the authority. You haven't been set free. And from time to time, the Christian will voluntarily enter into this yoke of slavery. But it doesn't mean that we are no longer Christians. The answer for us, it lies in Romans 8, but also lies in Romans 7. Do we hate our sin? Do we love what God loves? And in those moments where sin has come to our doors and it seems to be all over and overwhelming, who do we cry out to? Because that's what it says in Romans 7, isn't it? Verse 24, who will save me from this body of death? Praise be to Jesus who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God. We will have victory over our sin. But it might not be instantaneous. It might require a battle. It might require a war. It might last decades and decades and decades, but we will have victory and God will give victory. Do not settle with your sin. Be encouraged by the story of Peter. God used him mightily. Thousands upon thousands became Christians because of the story of Peter because of his influence in the early church, and yet he was not beyond his sin. So what do we do? We put it to death, and we cry out to Jesus. So I'm going to pray for us now that we would have the same experience that Peter had, right? the same experience that Paul had. Right? Not that we would be captivated by our sin, but that we would know exactly where to run to when we are. That we would know who we are and whose we are. We have been set free from sin. We have been set free from the law. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this text in Romans. It is a heavy, meaty text, but I pray that it penetrates through our minds and hits our hearts. That those sins which we have settled with and just assumed would be with us to our death, that we would know that, that we have to hate them, we have to kill them, we have to make war with them. But it doesn't make us unchristian. That we would be encouraged by the story of Peter and of Paul, men who loved you, knew you, desired you, treasured you, and yet experienced the frustration of their sin. I pray that for those who have settled, it would alarm them and put them on ready state to make war with sin. That when it comes to our doors, claiming, claiming rights over us, we would know that we are not under the authority of sin. We are not under the authority of the law. But for those who are struggling, for those who are sitting in their sin, saying, who will save me? We pray that the Holy Spirit would remind them. It's Jesus. Run to Jesus. Set your eyes on Jesus. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. We pray these prayers in his name. Amen.